Blessed are your eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, but they did not. And to hear what you hear, and they did not. These are the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he told the parable of the Good Samaritan and before he entered the village in which Martha and Mary lived. But he did not tell his disciples what their eyes were seeing or what their ears were hearing, that the prophets and kings of the Old Testament never saw and never heard. They would have to discern that for themselves. But what if Jesus were to speak these same words to us this morning, this very moment? Blessed are you who see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings long to see what you see, but they did not see. And to hear what you hear, but they did not hear. Why would Jesus bless our eyes and our ears today? What do you and I see that the Old Testament prophets and kings desired to see, but did not see, and to hear and did not hear? Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan is a good place to start because it informs us very clearly what you and I see that prophets and kings did not see. In fact, you and I not only see it, we are practicing it. It is the activities that we as a congregation have been engaged in. Jesus had been asked a decisive question by a lawyer. Who is my next one? That, in fact, was the question. It was not, who is my neighbor? Gaiton is the technical word for neighbor, and that's not the word the lawyer is using. And the lawyer would have no difficulty in defining that word, for Gaiton is the person who lives next door, the person in his clan, the person who belongs to the same ethnic community. He he wanted an answer that would set boundaries for the more ambiguous word, pleision. You shall love your next one as yourself. Who is the next one? How should he relate to the many kinds of people that he encounters in his daily life. We might be inclined to ask the same question. What are the guidelines that will help us to determine who really is my neighbor? Jesus answered the lawyer's question by telling the story of the Good Samaritan, and he ended it with a more open-ended question. Who of the three was a next one? Who of the three was the neighbor to the one who fell into the hands of the bandits? The lawyer could not take the name Samaritan on his lips, but he was compelled to answer the one who showed him mercy. By admitting this, he, the lawyer, was confronted with a new reality, a reality he had never considered before 
The question is not, who is my next one? That requires establishing boundaries and building fences. The real question is, to whom can I be a next one? Where in our everyday life can we be real neighbors to our fellow human beings? For those who follow Jesus the Christ as his disciples, there are no boundary lines. There are no walls between us and any other human being. The activities we engage in as members of the First Presbyterian Church of San Anselmo disclose that we do not build any walls around our discipleship. We do not set any boundaries on our definition of who is our neighbor. We engage in rebuilding houses of people we do not know, people who are strangers in Mississippi, whose homes have been destroyed or damaged by Hurricane Katrina. We travel to Afghanistan and plant and give away trees to Muslims whose land has been ravaged by continuous war. We fly to Tel Aviv to plant olive trees and harvest olives for Muslim and Christian farmers who have suffered the destruction of hundreds of thousands of olive trees, while at the same time we affirm and work for the continuation of the nation Israel. Every year during the rain season, we join other congregations in Marin County to provide food and shelter for the homeless in our immediate society. We do this because our faith commits us to answering the open-ended question, to whom can we be a neighbor? This is what the Old Testament prophets and kings longed to see and did not see. It is the reality of an entirely new understanding of human relationships. Relationships without any boundaries. The question to whom can I be a neighbor leads us into a new world of relationships. It is a world without any isms, without racism, without the realities of class, without the realities of gender. What else might there be that our eyes see that the prophets and kings of ancient times did not see? The story of Martha and Mary offers us another glimpse of something very new that prophets and kings did not see but longed to see. Can you perceive it? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and upon entering a village, he is invited into a home of two sisters for hospitality. Most likely, they have had an earlier contact with him. They know him, and they love him. But the two of them pose a significant contrast. Martha has welcomed him and wants to honor him, and therefore she is engaged immediately in the preparations for a banquet. Mary, in contrast, has seated herself at Jesus' feet in the ancient posture of a student. And she is concentrating on what he has to say. Perhaps she even coaxed him into teaching. She wants to be educated. What will be the outcome of her determination to be educated? We are not told. 
Will she be shot in the head by men in her society who reject the education of women? Mary, like her sister Martha, are members of a society in which honor-shame culture determines all human relationships. The relationships between men and women, between husband and wife, and between fathers and children. Malala Yousafzai, the schoolgirl who was shot in the head by the Taliban for advocating the education of girls, belongs to Pakistani society in which honor-shame culture is predominant. This honor-shame culture that defined human relationships in the ancient world continues to define human relationships in the world today, even in the religion of Islam. In honor-shame culture, honor is a limited good, and it is the prerogative of men. Male space is the business world, the marketplace, and that is where honor is acquired by actions. Actions, in fact, are more important than words, and how one speaks is more important than what one says. If you have seen the Godfather movies of the 1980s, you will have experienced this reality of honor-shame culture. Because honor is a limited good, it can never be a permanent possession. It must continually be acquired through challenge and response with other men, but always and only with men of the same social class and stature. Lying and deception are honorable and legitimate in honor-shame culture. To lie in order to deceive an outsider, someone who has no right to the truth, is honorable. The right to truth and the right to withhold truth, therefore, belong to every man of honor. And if these rights are contested, that man's honor is placed in jeopardy, and he must engage in a challenge in order to recover the honor that has been questioned or lost. The boundary lines of honor include the man's larger family, his parents, his wife and children, his patrons, his king, and his God. As a man of honor, however, he must continue to establish his masculinity by challenging the boundaries of other men through their women. His masculinity is in doubt if he maintains sexual purity. Women in honor-shame culture are required to direct themselves toward shame. But shame as a positive inward reality that is maintained by remaining in female space with female things, such as the kitchen and kitchen utensils, going to the well to draw water, engaging in spinning and weaving cloth, sewing, baking bread, and sweeping the house. Women must protect their shame by being sexually exclusive, and their husbands must protect that sexual exclusiveness in order to maintain their honor. 
Women's shame also requires that they are submissive to their husbands. Their place is to be obedient, passive, timid, restrained, and unwilling to take risks. Girls in honor-shame culture are raised to be like their mothers, and therefore throughout their lives, they are required to be directed toward and preserving their shame. Education is an activity that does not belong to female space and of house and home. And consequently, it is not a right and privilege in which women are permitted to engage. In May of this year, conservative lawmakers in Afghanistan blocked legislation aimed at strengthening provisions for women's freedoms. They argued that parts of the legislation violated Islamic principles and encouraged women's disobedience. Afghanistan's parliament has more than 60 female lawmakers, but that is not the result of the country's voting process. It is the result of a constitutional provision that requires the reservation of certain seats in parliament for women. Since 2009, the law on the elimination of violence against women has been in effect, but only by presidential decree. The law criminalizes child marriage and forced marriage and makes domestic violence punishable by up to three years in prison and specifies that rape victims should not face criminal charges for fornication or adultery. Recently, more than 200 male students protested in front of Kabul University against this presidential decree, claiming that it was, quote, imposed by foreigners, unquote, and that it, inv- that it violates Islamic Sharia law. The presidential decree remains in force, but the parliamentary debate is galvanizing opposition to it. In this context, it is worth remembering that the first global review of violence against women found that 35% of the women of the world today have been physically or sexually abused by a former or current partner. Malala Yousafzai, the Pakistani schoolgirl who was shot in the head by the Taliban for advocating the education of girls, has remained in England for the time being. Her father, Ziu Aldin, a school headmaster, has accepted a three-year position as education attaché at the Pakistani consulate in Birmingham. That makes it unlikely that the family will return to Pakistan very soon. And that is just as well, because the Taliban have vowed to shoot her again. As we learn about the honor-shame culture that existed during the time of the Old and New Testaments and its continued predominance in the world today, what do our eyes see that kings and prophets in ancient times did not see? What do we see that is happening in this very brief story of Jesus being wined and dined in the home of Martha and her sister Mary? 
Martha, as a woman of honor-shame culture, is bound to her traditionally determined female space. She is honoring Jesus by her preparations for a four-course dinner, but she is exasperated because her sister has dared to enter male space and has seated herself at Jesus' feet in order to be educated by him. Jesus is conducting his ministry in the honor-shame culture of his society, but he is engaged in eliminating it because it is destructive of human beings. Mary has taken the initiative to seat herself at his feet in order to be educated by him. His commission to establish the kingdom of God commits him to Mary's education and therefore also to our liberation as a woman who has been confined and restricted by the oppressive structures of a male-dominated society. By sitting at Jesus' feet, she is engaged in activity that is reserved for men alone, but she probably will not be shot in the head by the men of her village. What Mary initiated by her radical act was the beginning of a revolution that has continued into our own time. The prophet Isaiah, as God's spokesperson, had already announced it many centuries earlier. See, Isaiah says, as God's spokesperson, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you, these new things are generating an upheaval in the social structures of the world and fundamentally transforming the relationships between men and women on all levels of society. Mary, by aggressively taking the initiative of seating herself at Jesus' feet, is raising herself to equality with men. And in the process, she is building a new sense of self-esteem that she could never, never have in honor-shame culture. The education she is receiving from Jesus will change her status in the household of her family. The kitchen will no longer be female space, and sweeping the broom will no longer be one of her servile duties. Raising the children in her family will require the complete involvement of her husband. The degrees that she receives at college or university will enable her to be qualified for any and every position and office, and her economic worth and status, therefore, must necessarily be equivalent to that of men engaged in the same activity or occupying the same office. Her education will qualify her for the same political offices in government that men have dominated for millennia, while it will also certify her for any role in the ecclesiastical institutions of the church, whether elder, pastor, or bishop. Blessed are the eyes which see what you and I are seeing. We're seeing world transformation. We're seeing the liberation and equalization of women of all, in all structures of society. <clears throat> it began with Mary letting go of the shyness and timidity that honor-shame culture imposes on all women. 
And it began with Jesus accepting her as a student and without hesitation proceeding to serve her as a teacher. Under the honor-shame culture of antiquity and under the honor-shame culture that dominates around the world in our time, that was and continues to be terribly dangerous, even deadly. How then do we evaluate Mary's sister Martha, who remains in her imposed role and space as a woman who exists to serve as a cook and housewife? Martha appears to have the best of motives. She wants to honor Jesus with a banquet dinner, but she also wants Jesus to chide her sister Mary for abandoning her in her female space. Instead, Jesus chides her for being worried and distracted about many things, things related to female space. He acknowledges her meal preparation, but how is not immediately obvious. Of one thing there is need, he says to her, or as it is translated in our pew Bibles, there is need of only one thing. What is that one thing? Mary, as Jesus tells Martha, has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. Mary has stepped outside of honor-shame culture and chosen to be educated. That is the good part. Jesus does not say it is the better part. Martha's part is equally good, but the distractions of her many tasks in the preparation of the meal keeps her in the female space that honor-shame society imposes on her. She is dominated by a traditional role, and therefore she is not free. That, then, is her need. She has need of only one thing, freedom. The freedom to choose in the face of all the traditional duties and cultural roles that society imposes on her. Martha can remain in female space to prepare a banquet for Jesus, but the good part is choosing to do it in freedom. What Jesus said to his disciples before he told the story of the Good Samaritan and before he entered the home of Martha and Mary, he says to you and me today, blessed are the eyes which see what you and I are seeing and ears which hear what you and I are hearing. For I tell you that prophets and kings desire to see what you and I are seeing and to hear what you and I are hearing but they did not. May our eyes continue to be opened so that we perceive the new things that God is doing in our world today. May our eyes be opened so that we perceive the new things that God is doing in our personal lives. May our eyes be opened so that we are always mindful of the need of one thing, our freedom to choose how to serve God and to whom we can be a neighbor. Amen.